Hi everybody, I'm Ray Otis. Today is Friday, May 3rd, 2019, and this is episode 66 of Plundergrounds. First, we're going to hear from Jim Jones on Urban Druids. He's got some cool thoughts to share. Then we're going to hit a few call-ins, and finally, I'm going to review a zine called 92 Tables by Stephen Carnes, and a small game called The Mutants of Ix by Carl Stiernberg. But first, the theme song. Take it away, Logan. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hey Ray, I really like the idea of urban druids. The picture of an urban druid that comes to mind for me is one that treats the urban environment and its systems as a living, breathing organism. My urban druid can shapeshift into animals that have flourished in urban areas. Stuff like raccoons, squirrels, pigeons, corvids like ravens or crows, cockroaches or a mass of cockroaches, gulls, ducks, rabbits, falcons, hawks, boars, dogs, cats, little lizards, stuff like skinks and annals, coyotes, foxes, skunks, possums, some deer, alligators. I have some ideas about druid spells too. That'll be on my next post. Hey Ray, this is Jim. Here are my thoughts on druid spells. In keeping with the idea that the urban druid treats the urban environment as a living organism, I could see just changing the flavor of existing spells or creating ones that use the urban environment to the practitioner's benefit. Entangle, to use your example, would see bricks and cobblestones flying from the streets and surrounding walls to entomb a foe. Or, if the city has rudimentary or magical water and sewage systems, you could see pipes burst from the ground to entrap a foe and spew their contents all over them in the process. I could see higher level druids being able to reconfigure streets and alleyways to affect the party's own escape and thwart the escape of a foe, either permanently or temporarily changing the maps of an area. Urban druids could stride across rooftops as if walking along a street or be able to drop into any sewer point and find the underground passage to their wanted destination. Wouldn't it be awesome for an urban druid to make the expression, if these walls could talk, into a magical reality by being able to to be told what had happened in a place by the walls themselves. Hey Ray, it's my last thoughts on the Urban Druid, just to finish up what I've been talking about before. If your fantasy setting has gas lamps, you can see those being used by the Urban Druid for attack and defense. I could also think that the Urban Druid would be very effective in the right game. In fact, they wouldn't have to be in a city, they could be in a dungeon crawl. And in a dungeon crawl, uh, through the ancient civilization's creation, they might be more effective than the standard Druid. Uh, maybe not as good in the forest adventure, but like you said, maybe changing how the uh, druid uh, the druid spells would reconfigure to be um, a way to tame nature into a more civilized view of itself. So it'd be a lot of fun, I think. Along these lines, I'd be interested in hearing what people could make come up with uh, for a non-musical bard. I have ideas, but I would love to hear others first. Those are some great thoughts, Jim. I really enjoyed that call in. Thanks for putting so much time into it. I really think it's cool, this idea of a druid shape-shifting into a big cockroach. I love the idea of the druid being able to reconfigure the urban jungle to bend streets and alleyways to confuse pursuers or to walk across rooftops like it's forest walk. I mean, that's all great stuff. And you're right, the urban druid would be more at an, at an advantage in the dungeon than a druid of the forest or a druid of uh, some other natural environment. At least it seems like it would be to me. 
As far as bards that are non-musical, challenge accepted. I'm going to be thinking about that a little bit. Make sure you call in your thoughts. I'll get Logan Howard and maybe a few other people to call in as well on variants to the bard that is non-musical. I guess we can define that however we like. Uh, boy, that's, that's a crazy one. I, this should be a good episode. Thanks so much. Arthur here. Just uh, loved listening to your uh, reminiscing about Games Workshop games and uh, all your sort of tabletop miniature stuff. Um, big fan of Necromunda back in the day. Me and my brother used to play it. Um, hopefully we'll do an episode about that and some other games at some point. Um, but just wanted to ask when you said about playing Warhammer Fantasy and you played some of the other smaller scale stuff, a uh, big favourite for me was Warmaster, which was a 6mm uh, Games Workshop version of Warhammer Fantasy, and also Epic, which was the 6mm sort of version of 40k. Just allowed you to have a big table full of really small figures, and it, it just brought the scale back to uh, what you'd imagine. Really enjoyed the episode. Uh, keep up the good work. Bye. Those were really cool-looking games, Arfed. I kind of missed those games because that's right as I was getting back into the miniatures wargaming hobby. But I think there was also a naval one. Was it called Man of War? That had really tiny ships that looked really cool. Or was Man of War the science fiction one? I know they later came out with... No, that was Battlefleet Gothic. Wow, they've done a lot of games. But <laughs> those were those were really neat. I could still remember the 40k units. You'd have, uh, you know, a little tiny base of five terminators or whatever, and it just it really sold the idea of a four foot by eight foot table being a massive, massive battlefield, right? Or or four by six. What's the typical? It's been so long since I've done wargaming, I kind of forget my dimensions. But I think it was four by eight, a sheet of plywood in the U.S. In other words, and. Yeah, those, those were really cool-looking games. I kind of wish I'd had a chance to play them. I think that's what appealed to me about Debellus Multitudinous was the scale-to-battlefield ratio. It made it feel like uh, it really was thousands of troops. Uh, in Debellus Multitudinous, you used bases that were always 40 millimeters wide. So what's that, like an inch and a half, something like that? Maybe, maybe almost two inches. Uh, and they were different depths depending on the discipline of the troops. So a horde might have a really deep depth, meaning you could stack fewer units or get fewer units, you know, like behind each other, beside each... Well, the beside each other was always the same because they're always 40 millimeters. But uh, I think a horde base might be like 60 millimeters deep, whereas a unit that has really tight formations would only be maybe 20 millimeters deep. So you could fit three of those units in the same space that you could fit a horde. And... The game felt a little bit chessy. I mean, it wasn't your typical freeform miniatures game. I mean, yes, you didn't have squares. You used rulers and such. But the way the units moved, they kind of moved straight forward or pivoted in such a way that uh, they it felt very much like game pieces rather than units. I was always dissatisfied in 25mm fantasy wargaming by the cognitive dissonance between the the idea that I've got this, I don't know, a unit of maybe 30 miniatures or 40 miniatures on the table, and that's supposed to represent a horde of thousands and thousands of Skaven or Goblins. It just doesn't quite sell it. And so the rules were around this massive battle with fronts and flanks, but the miniatures look more like 
enough miniatures for a good skirmish. So I think that's why I liked the skirmish level 25 mil games. And I would love to see a resurgence of massive battle games that uses a much smaller scale, like 15 or even all the way down, like you said, to, uh, what was it, 6 millimeter. But I would love to see those games revived. I don't know if they ever will. I don't know if there's that kind of interest in them, but, man, those were cool. So thanks for bringing those back to my memory. That's all the call-ins I'm going to address directly today, but I've had some emails and call-ins about the homework I gave out on the last show regarding discovering a world through its literature or through a role-playing game based on it. And so far, the responses I've gotten have kind of leaned toward the evocative presentation of a setting, but I think that's just small sample size because I know I have some friends like Angus who are into history, and I think he, for instance, and I'm just guessing here, I could be wrong, might like the encyclopedic presentation a little bit better. But I uh, have shoved those call-ins to the, behind the final Rusty Chorus as bonus content. You'll hear from Cody M. of No Save For You and a new caller, Aaron Clark. In the meantime, let's get to our reviews. I received a cool little zine in the mail um, the other day called 92 Tables. It is by Stephen Carnes with illustrations by the excellent Evelyn Moreau. Evelyn, by the way, has a neat Kickstarter and puts out a lot of drawings that you can use in your publications if you are her Patreon. So um, I find that that to be one of the best like value for money Patreons that I'm a part of. I, I love her drawings, and I think she just does a, um, a really cool spread of things that are fantastic and different and yet uh, relatable, things that could kind of fit really into any zine project that's in the adventure gaming scene. Uh, so go check that out, and I believe that is patreon.com slash Evelyn Moreau, and that's spelled E-V-L-Y-N-M-O-R-E-A-U. E-V-L-Y-N-M-O-R-E-A-U. There you go. Uh, and then Stephen Carnes. I don't. I think. I think this is on Drive Through RPG. I think he just put it up there. The cover. Uh, it's. It's on yellow cardstock. And I really like this cover. It's very simple, but it's very cool. He's got uh, a black letter font that just says 92 tables and then underneath it for the black hack and other RPGs. Really, this whole thing is tables and there's nothing in here that is black hack specific even though he was thinking of the black hack when he wrote it. I don't see anything off the top of my head that is specifically a black hack mechanic. So you could use these tables uh, for any fantasy game. Uh, behind that text, which is on a little, let's call it a white, imagine a business card with the corners cut off. That's kind of the, the shape that the title text is on. And then behind that is uh, what looks like to be a vintage oily end paper. You know those kind of Easter egg patterns where uh, they would drop ink in onto water and then swirl them around a little and then press the paper down on it to get... Uh, they almost look like a scan of blood cells or something. But he's that's what's behind this. And that's just a super clever idea, actually. I wish I was... Uh, smart enough to like take you know, shortcuts like that. I mean, I don't mean to say that in a, a negative way when I say shortcuts. I think it's brilliant, honestly. So it looks really good. Um, he's got a nice little thank you and inspiration inside the back cover, and I am named there, as well as Logan Howard, Jason Cordova, um, other people I recognize here, Carl Sternberg, 
uh, Evelyn. So some some cool people. Uh, I like the references, uh, and then just a little logo on the very back. But um, so it gets right to it. There is tables on character details. There are tables on NPC details. There's tables on location details. Uh, there's no index, so that's kind of interesting. I don't know that you need an index for a for a zine this small, but um, I was making sure I didn't miss something here. Uh, and then there's just other tables. Okay, um, so let's let's go through a couple. Um, you can probably hear me flipping through it as we go here. Uh, first first one uh, in the character tables, they're divided up by class. So you have cleric, thief, warrior, wizard. Let's. Um, I've got some dice here, so I'm going to roll. I'm going to roll up some cleric stuff. Here we go. I need a D10 for this one. Uh, it uses several different kinds of dice, as far as I can tell, but all the this whole thing is all D10. So, my holy symbol is. I'm using my uh, cup holder here in CRV Studios as my dice tray. My holy symbol is origami animal folded each day. How cool is that? That's neat. All right, my prayer or ritual is elaborate hygiene rituals. Okay. I'm getting a I'm getting a, an Asian flair to this thing. Seven caused an accident that killed someone. That's my background. So I think, in keeping with what I just said, I think my religion is about doing no harm because I've I've learned a lesson about my recklessness has caused a death. All right, my deity or religion is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not sure how I'm going to make this fit in. King Cutter, first matriarch of the Goblin Horde. Is that some kind of reformed goblin god? Or let me let me roll up another one just to... I might... Um, Toothrix. T-W-O-O-H-T-R-I-X. Toothrix. That's, that's my god now. Um, there's an interesting entry in this table. Number 10 is, I am my own god. That's... Wow. That's a, the god in us. That could be deep. All right, I have a quirk, and my quirk is keeps misplacing my holy symbol. <laughs> okay, and I guess I can always fold a new one, but still, I only get one a day. So, And then my conflict is, according to my religion, people of my race are not worthy of enlightenment. Okay, all right, that settles it. I'm going back to the King Cutter, first matriarch of the Goblin Horde. I am a goblin cleric who... Um, has realized that my people cause nothing but harm and destruction and chaos, and I am I am distanced myself from them. I worship Toothrix, and my mantra is to do no harm. I am, and unlike most goblins uh, who are uncouth and reckless, I am couth and seemly and reserved, and I fold my little origami animal each day. That represents the totem animal that my god has given me for that day, and uh, I have resolved to do no harm. So there you go. I made a whole cleric out of the tables. Now let's go to the NPC details. Let's see what we can roll up here. Looks like most of these are D10 tables as well, so maybe I was wrong. I thought I saw some other D types in here somewhere. Uh, maybe they were in the other tables, but I know there's a D100 in here, but it looks like everything maybe uses a D10. Okay. Uh, let's do the name first. That's actually a little bit out of order, but we're going to do the name. I am a... Oh, let's see. We go by race. So my NPC is going to be... 
a mushroom, a mushroom man. Uh, there's a little asterisk here that says, Mushroom people have no spoken language and communicate by emitting spores to form shapes. So my name is uh, <laughs> Hand. My name is Hand. Okay, that's that's weird. Let's do a different one. Um, let's just make... Uh, I'm going to make a giant. All right. Number nine. Oh, my gosh, this name. Shvidkisnikate. Uh, well, this is pretty complicated for a giant. Shivy Disney Kate. Something like that. All right. Uh, that's my giant name. Apparently, giants in this setting are, well, uh, this setting is not really a setting, but are quite complex. All right. Here's my heritage. Let's do. Oh, my heritage is actually supposed to tell me what kind of creature I am. So I should have done this in order. All right. D10. Uh, oh, 10. I am a possessed dwarf. My visual detail is that I am very tall for my race, so I'm a tall dwarf. Uh, I like to complain. Uh, oh, uh, when they encounter me, I am complaining to the manager of a store. All right, I'm an NPC, remember. Um, and uh, my attire is made of flowers, so I wear a, I wear clothes made of woven flowers. That was a ten, by the way. My quirk is, as if that isn't quirky enough, that I constantly insult people. Uh, and my social standing is I'm well-liked by all. So that's, wow, that's interesting. I insult everybody, but everybody likes me. Maybe, I think, I think my insults are tongue in cheek. Um, there's a restaurant in Chicago that you go to and it's, it's par for the course that they insult you. It's kind of a funny thing. All the waitresses make fun of you. So if you take too long ordering or whatever, they get, they'd start reading you the riot act and it's funny. And so maybe that's it. I'm kind of a comedic tall dwarf about town that goes around dressed in flowers and making fun of people, but in a way that makes them laugh uh, at themselves. And so everybody likes me. At least all the commoners likely me. I think maybe rich people are, um, you know, not as, uh, they're too thin-skinned. So I am known for uh, having a very powerful enemy. There you go. So the, the rich people, they don't like me very much. Um, and I have one, I've offended one rich person in particular because I made fun of his wife in public or his spouse in public. Um, my ally is a vampire prince. Wow, that's cool. Um, my enemy is the head of a merchant's guild. That makes sense. Um, and my secret is, oh, oh no, I'm a halfling slave trader? What? <laughs> oh my gosh. This guy has a very dark side that you wouldn't know from the top. Maybe that's why I have a vampire patron. Ooh, Ah, that just got that got dark really fast. All right, so since I now I'm a um, I'm a dwarf, uh, let me roll my name for a dwarf. My dwarf name is Kraj or Kreg, depending on how you want to pronounce that. If you don't want this zine by now, I don't know what's wrong with you. This zine is awesome. Um, here's one on hex features, a table on hex features. We won't go into that, but there's one, two, three, four, five tables on hex features. There are um, six tables on settlements. Five tables on taverns. Uh, five tables on dungeon inhabitants. Um, all right, I got to see what this one's about. Let's roll through this one. One charismatic charlatan. That's the leader. Um, the equipment is mushroom based. The evil goals are that they reverse the direction of time. Uh, so they're fungi that like to erode things. I think they want to return everything back to its base nature into some sort of primordial ooze. Um, minions are feral children. 
so, wow, uh, Evelyn Moreau did a drawing one time that I loved, and it was kids with snails on their heads, and then the eye stalks of the snails, I think, were coming out the eyes of the children. And uh, wow. <laughs> so I get this idea of let's just change that to mushroom caps that they somehow put fungus on these kids' heads and it, it turns them into little kid zombies. Um, but there's, let's say there's some hope of redeeming them as kids. And so it makes it very hard to fight them in good conscience because you're killing a child. Yeah. Might as well make it difficult for people. Right. And the resources, uh, seven, a herd of rare livestock. Okay. That's awesome. Right. That is so cool. That's going to make my dungeon way more interesting. All right. Other tables. Um, oh, I love this table. Here is D100 in media res starts. Now, there's not 100 on here. There's maybe like, you know, there's a range of numbers for each one of these. So call it maybe 50. All right, let me roll one. 35. So 35 is at the bottom of a spike pit. There you go, spike pit. There's one for you. Um, I saw one that says, um, let me read a couple others. Watching their own funeral, contestants on a game show, house guest of an evil god, standing trial for crimes against the desert, um, buying tickets to the opera, trying to put out a fire. So those are pretty cool. Some of those are pretty neat in terms of how you might start the characters. Um, here's four tables on diseases, name, effect, caught from, and cured by, and then D100 magic side effects. So there you go. Uh, 92 tables by Stephen Carnes. An amazing little zine. I don't know what it's going for on drive through RPG, but it's worth it, whatever it is. I would easily pay up to maybe six bucks for a PDF of this. No, no question. Um, so there you go. Very good. Very good. Uh, some real imagination went into this. I see a lot of tables sometimes that are, uh, stuff that I could come up with on the fly on my own, right? We all have this kind of elastic limit to our imagination that when you get stressed or, um, under pressure as a, as a GM to come up with something very quickly, your elastic limit is, is constricted. You don't go very far from your center and your core is some pretty obvious stuff. Like, well, the NPC is a dwarf and he's a Smith and, uh, um, he's got a hammer with a rune on it and he's got a really long beard and like, okay, yeah, it's just a dwarf, right? <laughs> I need some tables that help me do weirder things that help me stretch my imagination that push that elastic limit out. And that is what 92 tables is. So very favorable review from me. I really dig it. Let's move on now to talking about Mutants of Ix. Carl Sternberg, who wrote this game, Mutants of Ix, is a cool artist. He does, uh, well, how to explain it? He does drawings that would be at home in a coloring book. They're like heavy black line drawings uh, with no interior shading for the most part. Sometimes he does like dot matrix shading or, or uh, I forget what you call that, but a pattern shading. Uh, and there's a lot of curvy crackle, like little, little black inky dots around it. So if you think about the illustrations from the black hack, they're, they're very similar to that. Although I think Carl was doing his long before that style got put into the black hack. Um, and so this game called Mutants of X just went up on drive through RPG. And I was immediately in because I like Carl's work. It appeared in my own zine, Plundergrounds in Kazarak and a few other places but most notably in Kazarak, especially that centerfold spread when you open it up and there's the uh, the dwarf mech fighting the big demon. That's Carl's work. 
Carl wrote a game called Rad Hack a while back, which is a which was based on the first edition of the Black Hack and was basically Gamma World for that. I have run that game. It's brilliant. Really nice little game. My only complaint about it is that, uh, you know, since it's such a small game, the mutation tables and, and things don't go very far and they're not very big. You would need to add to them pretty quickly. However, um, having said that, I mean, that's fairly, you know, it's fairly easy to expand that, right? Okay, so he's written another game called Mutants of X, and it looks very similar to Rad Hack to me, except that it's self-contained, um, and it is even smaller, and in some ways, I think, maybe even better. So uh, these games, I've got the two trifolds in my hand right now that I, I went ahead and printed them up, and there's one for the GM, and there's one for players, so you'd need multiple copies of the one for players, obviously. Let's look at that one first. There are some commonalities between the two. So you've got uh, the Mutants of X uh, intro text, which says, The Mutants of X, and that's I-X-X, by the way, is a post-apocalyptic role-playing game for around two to six people. This pamphlet contains all the rules you need to explore and exploit the many locations hidden deep within the lush but dangerous jungles of X. Okay, and that text is the same on both. There is, uh, uh, most of the front here is taken up by a die drop table of equipment. So you've got everything from a Molotov cocktail, a can of dog chow, um, uh, what looks like an old cell phone, um, a jacket with a, a turtle shell and spikes strapped to the uh, shoulder, uh, shotguns, a shiv, arrows and a bow, binoculars, that kind of stuff. Okay, post-apocalyptic crap, right? Um, and then there's a little bit on items and how much they cost. The, the economy in both this and Radhack are slugs. So basically ammo and money are the same thing, uh, which is very handy. Weapons cost their damage die in slugs. Armor costs a varying amount of slugs by hit points of armor. Uh, let's see. A character, here's the encumbrance rule. A character can safely, <laughs> a character can safely carry their strength in items, weapons, and armor. Okay. Um, and this is something that, that Carl often mentions in his little designs. Remember, use common sense and the rule of cool, and you'll be fine. So it's it's a it's a loose game. It's meant to be kind of a loose game. You make it your own. Uh, the character core, uh, character creation, and core rules take up one column. Uh, and I don't know that I need to go into this too much, but I will say this. Um, this is kind of a cool. You got three stats: strength, dexterity, and willpower. You roll three d six for all those. Then you roll three d six again. And um, that will be your starting slugs, that extra roll, except after you roll that fourth roll, you can sw swap any two stats. So you can actually use your money roll in place of, let's say, your strength stat, and then your strength stat becomes your, um, your money roll. And then, let's see, you uh, roll your hit points or hit protection... Uh, you get a random mutation, and you choose a specialty. Pick one weapon and two items. Give your character a name and short description, and you're off to the races. When you do stuff, you roll a d20 equal to or under your ability score. One's always a success, and 20's always a failure. So uh, very much like Black Hack. Um, you got advantage and disadvantage in play. Uh, it talks about turns and attacking, death experience levels. Uh, I do like his experience level system here. It's very simple. It's just based on the number of adventures you go on, and it's kind of a, a an escalating deal. Um, you go from Scrap Worm to Ruin Crawler to Jungle Prowler to Apex Predator, and then uh, on from there you get to name them yourself. Uh, the next column is Mutations and Specialties. So these are obviously... Uh, there are combat mutations, utility mutations, and mental mutations. So you've got... Uh, what's this? Like basically a 
a, a D3 and a D6, right? You roll um, one D6 will determine whether you get a combat utility or mental mutation, and then another D6 determines which one you get. So let's let me grab a die here. We'll, we'll roll one up. All right, I am getting a utility mutation, and it is camouflage. I can blend into the environment when perfectly still. Another example. Let's do one more just for fun. All right, I'm getting a mental mutation, and it is uh, nightmare vision. Opponent suffer, suffers horrible visions. Okay. Um, specialties are things like assassin, marauder, or gunner, lucky, waste doctor, skilled, um, like a skill monkey, adrenaline rush, survivalist, beastmaster. I like the beastmaster one. You get a fierce but loyal pet, and it gives you stats for it. Describe it. Technomancer, prepper. Uh, so, and it says at the bottom, feel free for, to invent your own mutations and specialties using the existing ones as inspiration and guidelines. Creativity is encouraged. All right, the third column of the inside. So, I've opened up this player guide, and, and so my first column was creation, character creation rules. The second column was mutations and specialties. The third is a map, which is really cool. It's a little hex map that is three hexes by one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hexes tall. And it's got uh, very suggestive-looking, uh, weird, apocalyptic things in it. There's kind of a smoking crater. There's something that looks like a, a, a building, but kind of shaped like a giant computer. Um, there's a huge trash heap. All right. Um, the next, so if I fold in the right-hand side, I get a character sheet that's really nice. Uh, Carl does artistic character sheets. So uh, for armor, you've got this, uh, you know... What tunic that's got spiked things and a stop sign strapped to it, and the in interior of the stop sign is blank, and that's where you're going to write your armor number. Um, under your uh, melee weapon, you've got a big bat with nails sticking out of it, and inside that bat is where you write your stuff about your melee weapon. Uh, there's a tin of chow where you can write how much you know food you have or whatever. So very cool. Um, it, the mutation uses a mutation die, by the way, and it uses the usage die from Black Hack. So. Um, you start off with a mutation die of a D4, uh, and whenever you use your mutation, if you roll a 1 or 2, it doesn't reset Excuse me, until you rest. Uh, and as you advance in levels, you get a bigger mutation die. So that's how mutations work, which is pretty cool. All right. Um, on the back, there is... Uh, so now if I've closed up uh, this, this trifold... Um, on the front is the Mutants of X description, and actually you can reverse the two folds and put on the front now your character sheet. So I've, I've put the left-hand side under and the right-hand side over, and that gives me my character sheet on top, and then I flip it over, and the middle column on the back then is mutation, specialties, and stuff lists. So it makes, it, basically this trifold of rules makes a character sheet, and it's awesome. You know, a little, um, you know, one-third of a U.S. letter size page vertical, um, a sitting horizontal, fold it in thirds, and then that's the size that you hold in your hand. That's the character. Okay, moving on to the GM guy. I mentioned before that there's a lot of the same stuff. So on the left-hand overfold of the mutants of the GM's guide, you've got the mutants of X game description. You got the equipment die drop table. You got item costs and things like that. Uh, and then if I open it on the inside uh, flap. On the right hand, so the first thing I see sort of when I pull the left hand flap open is the aforementioned map, except this time it's got uh, numbers on it. 
So I can assume the inside here is a key. And yes, in fact, before I even open up the trifold, if I just flip it over to the back, the middle column of the of what's going to be the back side of this uh, is known locations in the jungles of Ix. And so you've got uh, seven different locations and an explanation of what's in there. And then you've got a fairly lengthy table of travel and random encounters, which is pretty cool. And then one on adventure inspiration. So let me um, I'll roll a couple things here. Um, uh, basically the encounter table is, it says you, you, one hex equals a half a day of travel. You roll a D six every time on a one, you get a random encounter and then you roll two D six. So, Oh, I got a 12 VAT born human and two robot guards. So they give them a little bit of stats and it says curious about the world outside the safety of their hidden bunk. They have left the safety of their hidden bunker knows many secrets about the old world, but is hesitant to share carries lots of valuables. All right. That's my encounter. Um, in adventure inspiration is someone wants to steal an old relic from the followers of Chrome. Okay. And that's a uh, key to the map. So it says at three, so uh, Chrome is a giant inert robot mech kind of thing. Okay, so I'm going to open up the trifold and tell you about the three columns on the inside. Um, on the left, again, we have the character creation and the core rules. Again, in the middle, we got mutations and specialties. And on the right-hand column, in one column, we've got an example adventure, Layer of the Clonelings. It's got six locations in it. It's got a little dungeon map. Um, uh, uh, I won't. Uh, I won't go into what's in this. There are seven, like I said, seven keyed rooms uh, with explanations of the monsters in it and stats for them. So, man, there's a lot of game here. I think it was like I forget the price. I'm sorry. Was it like four bucks or something? There's a lot of game here for two sheets of paper. Um, it is ready to play. You could print the GM's guide in about five character sheets, uh, fold them ahead of time, stick them in an, a, a business envelope. And you would have a game ready to go. Uh, I think you would need what's what's the mechanic? I say you're going to need a D10 for the tables. You're going to need two D6, three D6 for your um, characters to roll, and you're going to need a D4. Yeah, you'll need all the dice. So you'll need because you need your mutation die and the whole bit. So you'll need a full set of polyhedrals. But yeah, one business size envelope, and you've got enough for a group of five to play a game. Mutants of X, another highly recommended from me. Very cool. Well done, Carl. Um, I think this takes Rad Hack and boils it down into uh, like a great little intro bit. And I would say uh, if you like this, then uh, maybe buy Rad Hack too and use that for extra ideas. Uh, that covers Rad Hack covers some things that are not covered in here, like how you deal with radiation sickness and and poisons and auto auto gun fire and that kind of stuff. I don't think that's covered in here. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, they just, uh, bigger weapons do bigger damage. So these are, uh, to be clear, these are not the same game. This is not the same game as Rad Hack, but it's similar enough that if you played this and you like it and you didn't want to build it out yourself, maybe then go pick up Rad Hack and use that. I don't know if Carl plans more adventures for this one. Carl, if you're listening, you totally should. You should do more of these GM pamphlets and just use them as expansions. Um, you've already got, basically, I, I mean, all you need is a new, let's see, one, two... Three, there'd only be three columns worth of writing to do a new one of these because <laughs> there's enough repeat on here uh, with the character creation rules and all that. So yeah, do some more, man. Do some more. This is cool. I really like this. Surely that's enough for today. I've done three podcasts this week. I guess I'm just on a roll. Uh, I'm Ray Otis signing off. This has been Plundergrounds. Hope you've enjoyed it. 
The opening theme music is by Logan Howard of the excellent Swordbreaker podcast and zine. Thank you to all the people who called in. Thank you, Cody M. from No Save for You. Thank you, Arfed, brother of Colin Green, who does Spike Pit and uh, sometimes guest appear- uh, appearer <laughs> on Spike Pit. Um, thank you, Aaron. For your call in, uh, I know Aaron Clark that you are online a lot. I don't know that you have a podcast. If if you have one, call in again and tell me about it. Um, but you're all over the internet. I think I follow you on I Know Reader. Um, I see you in social media circles. So thank you for calling in. It's nice to put a voice to your name. Uh, let's see. You can find a Gateway website to links that uh, have links to all my stuff at www.rayotus.com. That's R A Y O T U S. And until next time, look out for rust monsters. Hey, Ray, it's Cody. Um, For this Doctor Who scenario, I guess it really just depends. Um, Are we playing as the Doctor? Or are we playing as some random humans or whatever other aliens there are? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess if if someone's going to be playing the Doctor, then I think to get the flavor of that character, it's probably best to go watch one of the episodes of the TV show and then maybe pick up one of the paperbacks and uh, read through those. I mean, you can blow through that in an afternoon. They're pretty short, like 150 pages or so. Um, and I'm probably going to run out of time before I can get the next idea, so I'll call you back. So in your scenario, if we're playing just random humans, then I think um, maybe getting like uh, just a quick encyclopedic knowledge um, of the the universe and the world is probably better. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of the time those RPG books, they just give you like the quick bullet point history and, and lore and that kind of stuff, and that might be useful at the table, um, but not necessarily watching the show, right? Because if you're watching the show, you're, you're not going to be, pl- unless you're playing again one of the characters from the show or reading one of the characters from the books, if you're trying to play someone else, then I don't think that is as useful as getting it from a book. So that's just my thoughts, man. And uh, I look forward to the next one. Take it easy. Hey, Ray, Aaron Clark. I just finished listening to your podcast about literature and RPGs. Forgive the background noise. I'm here at the gym. Might be a little tinny. Might be a little equity. I like this idea of using literature uh, in in my role playing games. Things that come to mind are like Elric of Melbourne, uh, but I like more the evocative setting, the one that doesn't spell everything out, um, that kind of implies a bunch, and then lets the players, the game master and the players, kind of build something together. In terms of what I would prefer starting a game based on literature is I would encourage my players to read something or view something about that world or about that setting to see if it's for them and to kind of get them in that mindset rather than going and consuming a whole bunch of encyclopedias.